Main Street to Wall Street, global business celebrity and former Fortune 100 C-suite executive Jeffrey Hazlett takes you inside the good, the bad, and the ugly of businesses today. Saddle up. It's time for All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. Hey, to become an agent of change, one has to be nimble and agile. Every industry has been disrupted or is being disrupted. And in order to adapt to that, we have to think outside the box in order to solve everyday business problems. My guest today is Tony Hunter. The chairman and CEO of McClatchy, a publishing company focused on delivering high-quality journalism. In 2008, he turned around the Chicago Tribune during one of the worst economic downturns in modern history. He's an agitator, an advocate for big change, and a career-long business disruptor. Tony, welcome back to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. Hi, Jeffrey. How are you today? Good to see you. Pleasure to be here. You're looking great as always, you know. I tell you, I don't know what I don't know what you're drinking or or smoking for that matter. But I'm gonna oh, keep stop it, stop it now. I'm a papa. Come on, I'm a papa. <laughs> exactly. Uh, no, it's an it's, it's an honor to uh, yeah. honor to be here, Jeff, and uh, an honor to represent our great company and all of our talented people at McClatchy. So thank you for having me today. Well, you know, speaking of that, I know that you were you know doing some board gigs and a lot of different stuff at a very high level. What what made you take the chairman and CEO role at McClatchy? Well, uh, well, first and foremost, I had worked for an iconic media company. And uh, to come back to anything but another iconic media company, I would not have uh, considered. McClatchy's iconic. They're also an organization that stayed committed to local independent reporting, even throughout the pandemic, investing in local journalism, and that, to me, is the bedrock of success for the future. So they did that well. And I knew the people there, and highly collegial, uh, collaborative, talented. And last, of course, you know, I love a challenge. And I, I really believe there's an opportunity to do something special at McClatchy to create a sustainable business model for an industry that's so important. Give me an idea of the, of the scope of McClatchy in terms of size, because a lot of people aren't always familiar with these kinds of names behind the scenes like you or I are. You know, we are, uh, because we've been in the business of media, we've been in the business of printing, we've been in the business of journalism. Right. Give me an idea about how the how big is the company? Well, we, we own 30 news sites, if you will. Well, from Sacramento, Kansas City, Miami, Raleigh, Charlotte. Uh, so we own 29 of those, and we have a Washington, D.C. bureau. And, you know, we this company has a long legacy of great journalism, and, and that bedrock of success is what we're building on today. Uh, we're now a private company, which is terrific because, frankly, we're not chasing the next quarter. We're, we're, we're really focused on how can we reestablish ourselves in those 30 communities and become the preeminent media player in those local markets. And I keep saying local intentionally, that's where all the value is created. And so in those 29 cities in Washington, DC, our goal is to create essential journalism that, in, that consumers value and are willing to pay for. And clients believe the only way to succeed is to use our distribution channels to reach those audiences. It's simple. Simple approach, but as you know, highly sophisticated solutions, complicated, and uh, plenty of competition. 
But that's a little bit about us. We're we're national in that sense. Yeah, 12 years ago, you and I were talking about hyper-local before a lot of folks were talking about that. We were actually looking to produce newspapers, get this, at a local level um, and personalized at a local level. So which is just still, here we are 12 years later talking about it. Let me, I'm curious though, Tony, because you and I haven't had a chance to talk, even though we've been trying to make connection the last couple of days. How did you get the call for the role? Did, was that through, I'm always curious about that. Was it a recruiter? Did, was it one of the execs there, the owners, board member? How did you get the role? Well, I had been working with Chatham Asset Management, uh, which was the company that uh, was the primary lien holder during bankruptcy and eventually bought the company. And I was going to join the board of directors at McClatchy. And in talking to them and discuss and having known them for a while, um, I, I really liked what they were doing and how they were thinking about it. And I guess they liked my ideas. And so we decided that uh, why not just not just be a board member? Why don't you come in and run the company as well? And again, for the reasons I told you earlier, I'm, I'm honored. It's, it's a humbling, another humbling opportunity for me. But really, Jeff, it's like things we've talked about in the past. The circumstances, the pandemic, the, the exiting of bankruptcy, my experience, you know, you know, yeah. that preparedness meeting the circumstances in a lot of ways is the really the, the success I've had is, is, has been that, that things come together nicely. You sound excited. Uh, I'm, this has been so fun. And uh, I love the company I work with and for. And, uh, and we're doing some great things at McClatchy. Uh, you know, we've been challenged forever. That's why I say to folks, let's stop talking about challenging. I mean, for God's sakes, we've been in a challenge for 20 years in publishing. It's what are we going to do about it? And we have, a, you know, this year, my motto is expect to win. I think, you know, you got to believe you can win and we're getting some successes, but I think getting our folks to come to work and expecting to win is, is so important because we've been in bankruptcy. You got the headwinds, you got all this poor, poor us coming from the media as well about our sector. And, and a big part of being a good leader, I think is showing the path to winning and getting people to expect to win. And that's what we're working on from a cultural standpoint. Well, and I think that's a big thing in terms of changing mood. I always say mood will kill a company faster than anything. Culture certainly will, you know, but mood, if you can't get into a good mood about who you are, you're fighting fighting headwinds before you begin. I'm curious about your first 100 days as CEO. (laughs) You know, did you apply the same strategies at McClatchy that you did with Chicago Tribune? How did you change things? You know, what was it? What, what did your first hundred days look like? Well, first of all, I'm going to get to six months, I hope, by the end of the week, <laughs> if I make oh, it. Wow. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, and but but think about this. I have met zero employees face to face. Zero. So that's that that in and of itself is mind blowing. Yes. But to get to your question in the first hundred days, the differences to me is I knew what needed to be done. I had done it before and learned from all my mistakes. And so when I got here, I pulled out my transformation handbook, but this time I did it right. Mm -hmm. This time I didn't waste time. I got after it, I got the senior team to buy in and we just got to work 
and our action to talk ratio, which you know I like to use, was really high. And that first 100 days, getting buy-in, building a business plan together, and making it directionally correct and simple is what I learned from Chicago Tribune, but I took longer than we had much more revenue to lose, as I like to say back then, right? Now, speed and action orientation was critically important. So same playbook, shorten the time frame, and we're seeing some good results early, but again, we're in the early innings. Uh, this is a long game, and, uh, but we're, we're off to a good start. What did you mean by waste time? So what, what did you do before that you wasted time and now you, you don't have, I mean, because I say during COVID especially, and I want to get back to this thing, you've never met an employee yet. I know that you've done it on virtual, but it's kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. but, uh, but I say right now in COVID, days have become weeks, weeks have become months, months have become years, you know, with the digital transformation. I mean, it's forced everybody into the digital. So what do you mean by waste time? Well, what I meant by that is, and this isn't an original quote, but intelligence and wisdom only comes from experience, right? So when I say waste time, I mean, I had to go through and learn. I was a, remember, I was a first time CEO, great recession, digital disruption, secular declines, social media. I mean, I, I was hit, I wanted to hide under the desk yeah. many days. I mean, it, and so- all of us did. All, By the way, let's just be clear, all of us did, because we were looking around, right. You had nothing to go on. You just, it had to be pure, one, adrenaline, two, just the, your your go-to-edness go in terms of, hell, I got nothing else to lose. Boom, let's go, right? And at least now you've been through it before, right? Yeah, and I think the other thing is when you're successful, we've talked about change in culture. When you're successful, it is hard to turn that battleship. Yeah. When you come out of bankruptcy, and you've been restructured, you don't have a lot of time, right? So when I say waste time, I meant I could have taken more time, but I didn't because of the circumstances and because of my experience and frankly, graduating from the school of hard knocks, right? I have learned what not to do. I learned what failed. Uh, and what I've learned mostly is action is better than talk. And so let's get started and pivot along the way. And that's what I mean by I didn't spend a lot of time and energy cajoling and convincing. And part of that was because of the circumstances, frankly. C-Suite Radio. I'm curious, you know, in, in big organizations, this is big, um, big turnarounds. There's sometimes you've got some pockets of obstructionists, you know, people that are champions or captains of no, I've heard someone say, they just sit around and say, no, are you seeing a lot of that? Or are you seeing people going, well, that stuff didn't work. Let's go. You know, are they, are they drinking your Kool-Aid, your success Kool-Aid? Well, a couple things on that. Um, you know, I, I said earlier, McClatchy's a collaborative, highly talented, committed to the mission. You know, it was up to me not to screw that up, frankly. I mean, mm -hmm. you get all those ingredients as a leader. You walk into something that you should be able to do something with, right? And so we're, it's a trust but verify, right? Everyone does that with a new leader. And so we've communicated. I'll get to your question, but we've communicated more intensely. We've been transparent about why we're doing things. And what you find is winning begets winning. 
right? You start, everybody wants to win. And so we needed to get some wins. We've got some wins. That helps. And I think also, again, uh, the people that uh, want to be obstructionists tend to either leave or be asked to leave early in a turnaround, at least in my experience. But there was not a lot of that. I want to be clear. I walked into a terrific situation, and it was up to me to rally people as a leader with a plan, tell them where we're headed on a North Star basis, and then connect the dots on how we're going to get there. And frankly, turn them loose and let them do their work and let them do their great work. And I have found uh, that that people want to win generally, Jeff, as you and I know as leaders. Most people come to work wanting to win. Yeah, there's few people that wake up say every morning says, I can't wait to be stupid. I mean, there are a few of those people. We know who they are. And most of them have run for office. But nonetheless, let's go on. <laughs> so you've been in the media business for a long time now. How are you currently navigating the d- disruption in journalism today? I mean, so you got you got the media is changing, but this journalism is changing. How are you dealing with all that? Well, I'm very blessed. Uh, our leader in the news division, Kristen Roberts is one of the best. She's a digital native and she's got experience as an editor on a digital platform. And she has really turned our news division into a customer facing, data driven, really uh, analytically driven uh, news division. And to me, that was critical. So again, when I got here, she had already built, built that infrastructure and that thinking. But I think that's critical is is before we would write things we thought the audience liked and it was hard to really determine if it was successful now we know what you read how often we know when to give you an offer we know when to raise your price we know when to transition you to different products because of this data-driven nature of the business so i think we've always been good at subscription marketing i find that interesting everybody wants to be a subscription marketer now We've got hundreds of years of experience in that. And and I think moving that over to digital and having data-driven solutions on the news side is critical. And then I also think we have to digitize our business faster. Uh, Only do what we do really well. We've got great content. We've got great audiences that everybody would love to reach, multiple distribution uh, channels, and we've got great brands. So. Let's stick to our knitting. Let's double down on those and everything else. Let's automate, digitize, get variable costs structure in place. And I, we think there's a path forward with that kind of a model and that kind of a think, thinking. It'll be a smaller company. The revenues on print will keep coming down. But if you do all those things and you stick to your you're knitting, I think we still are competitively advantaged in all of the markets we operate. I, I believe that. It's up to us not to let that advantage uh, slip away from us. Well, so trust is a big essential component in any business. How are you getting your employees and leaders to trust you with, okay, here's the new thing, here's the new formula, and yet you're not there with them? You know, you're not there, you know, sitting in the same room. How are you, how are you, how are you doing that? Are you having team huddles? Are you getting together with regular town hall meetings? Are you putting out, you know, little, uh, little uh, newsletters every morning? What is it that you're doing to get them to buy in and drink that Kool-Aid? 
Well, a, a couple of things you you've hit on them. You you know my playbook. You've uh, you've talked to me before about this. Uh, we've really committed. Uh, I think now we're on our third or fourth town hall in six months with employees, where we basically share where we're going, why, uh, share the results, uh, full transparency with our employees, so they they get to see it in real time where we fail, where we succeed, and it, more importantly, Jeff explaining why we're doing things. Yeah. People tend to, um, and then it's trust, but verify, right? Did you do what you were going to say? Uh, we're, we're also really focused on the top 50 leaders in the company. I have regular interactions with them. They run the company. I, I learned that a long time ago. And last, the old fashioned, it, it still works. The cell phones still work. You know, I, I, I used to love walking the halls. I wear out my shoes. And so just picking up the phone and talking to people and explaining things and, and being attuned to what the what you're hearing back through the, the feedback mechanisms and addressing it quickly. And so none of that's rocket science, but it takes attention, focus, and care. And as an executive, I'll just say this, there are others on, the, on today's session may, may be different, but when you're operating, it is so hard to keep your head up and be aware that communication is basically 80% of our job as a CEO um, instead of being into the details. So I've tried all that. Uh, hopefully I'm succeeding. Uh, the feedback has been positive, uh, but, but every day I get a scorecard on that. I realize that we have high expectations for all leaders and sometimes they're hard to reach, but that's what you sign up for when you sign up to be a CEO. Totally. So a few months back, you wrote a blog post about how big companies need to act like small companies. Why do they need to do that and why, you know? Well, what I've found is it's great to have good infrastructure, process, controls, money, um, you know, staff, but, but of course, speed and the ability to test new things and pivot and, and really be all in on the mission. If you think about small companies, you know, they get formed. Everybody that formed it was a big believer in the mission, passionate about what was going on, poured their souls into it. I think that's an important ingredient. Small companies also fight like hell every day to survive. And I think that's the kind of fight we need to have in our company. And last, smaller companies pivot, right? That, you know, that wasn't a mistake. That was a learning, you know, you know and, and I think the larger you get, the more that disappears. And well, bigger companies, I think, should keep those things that are strengths, but they should inject these small company attributes along with the things that matter of being larger. And I think that's great for disruption, frankly. That, that suits you well to prepare you to uh, operate in a disruptive environment. Well, speaking about disruption, last time I talked to you, you were involved in the cannabis business with Revolution Enterprises. You know, how does one grow a business that's yet to be fully re regulated or regulated differently and then jump into this, which, which is so open and everybody sees everything you do? where you would have been more right. guarded in that business because of all the regulations. Uh, what did you learn through that process that you might be taking? Oh, this is, you can't make this up, Jeff. You, you just can't make this up. 
I learned all about capital markets. I learned all about uh, debt financing. I learned about capital structure. I learned all the balance sheet things as an operator. I'm an income statement person. And I never really, you know, I, I loved it because I was learning. And then what did I come to? A situation where I got to know debt covenants, balance sheet, <laughs> capital markets. Talk so to it, creditors. Just, like crazy, right? Yeah. <laughs> right? So, so it's just so interesting how trying new things, gaining new experiences and skills prepares you for the next thing. And on the regulatory side, you know, what I also learned was so the importance of operational excellence. And I've always been a, you know, you, you know this, I'm, I'm over the top, you know, operational excellence, execution at a flawless level, knowing what the efficiency metrics are, knowing what productivity metrics are, quality metrics. In the cannabis sector, that is so important because you can lose your license. And so that applied well for me. I, I, I could relate to that. And I think just in our business now, it's just changed. You know, we outsourced our printing. We don't print except for one location. Uh, you know, it's just a different focus. But executing well in a regulatory environment just really reinforced what I knew uh, when I worked in publishing before. So those are some of the nuances, but I learned a ton and it actually prepared me for this opportunity. So uh, I'm going to give you one last question. What do you think is going to be the next big disruptor? Are we, and are we ready for it? I'll add it with a one-two punch. What's going to be the next one? And are we ready for it? Well, I'll be hopeful on, on this because we talked about disruption. And you asked me why I came back. I'm hopeful the next disruption is that the misinformation age that we have seen and lived through and you see the polarization of media outlets you see the con the conspiracy theories you see all of that i'm hopeful the next disruption is actually a return back to a place where people go to get real objective news and information frankly and where and and disruption coming back our way in that we should get paid for our content and so that to me Maybe those aren't disruptive. They are to our sector. Uh, but I think the circumstances have created maybe an opportunity versus disruption for us. If we do our jobs extremely well, I think there's not wind at our back, but certainly the wind in, in our face should, should get a little easier if those things happen. And, and I'll tell you, I think uh, just like nobody could have predicted what has happened in the last 10 years, it is extremely difficult to look out and say what the next thing is. But the pandemic, you, you said it well, the pandemic has sped up uh, the transformation of business. It is amazing to watch. Almost everyone is in direct to consumer now. Almost everyone is transferring the last mile to the customer, right? Come pick it up. Just things that before retailers would never have thought these things. They wanted people in their store. So I think the retail disruption that has started, I think will continue. Absolutely. That's the best All I right. got for you.
All right. No, that's pretty. Hey, that's pretty good. You know, someone Tom Fox mentioned, I said, he said, I'm hearing the hero factor in practice. And if you get to know Tony Hunter, you'll know that he is a hero leader, cares about his people, cares about his family, too. I can tell you that. And what you're seeing is a real leader in disruption. We're seeing that across the board. I think you're you're spot on with wanting to go back to a trusted environment. You know, we believe that at the C-Suite Network, trusted executive. So with that, Tony, thank you so much for being on All Business with Jeffrey Hazel here today on C-Suite Radio. And as part of the Digital Discussion Leadership Series, I'm going to turn it back over to Greg and Tricia, because I know we've got a lot of great questions coming from uh, the participants that are here and registered. So turning it over to you guys. C-Suite Radio. Thank you so much, gentlemen. That was fantastic. And Tony, you know, I spent a decade in a media business, so uh, you're you're speaking all of my love languages, I think. So uh, we got some great questions. Lynn O'Neill, who's one of our executive leaders, says, uh, what's your outline for the organization's future culture? If we're going to make change, we've got to start with the people. So what is your outline? What's your, what's your plan of attack when it comes to that? Well, we, we in fact, have just... Uh... Just recently, we talked about this at our town halls. We, we began to play defense. You know, when you're under disruption, sometimes you hunker down and it's all about cost cutting and, and turning the mentality from playing defense to offense, operating with caution to operating with confidence. I mean, those are important behavioral and mindset issues for us. I also am asking my team to take action. I, I'm, I'm impatient, but I'm also one that believes you never get it right the first time. And so this action orientation uh, is also collaboration. Uh, I didn't want to mess with that. I came into something that was highly collaborative and I want to maintain that. And the last thing is it's okay to debate. Better ideas always prevail. You can debate and debate and debate, but when we agree, Everybody has to get behind it. No water cooler. Now it's virtual. No water cool, cooler chatter. No, I'm going to be passive. No. Once we agree, let's all rally around that and get after it. And I think that along with this agility notion that uh, Jeff and I talked about makes for a great culture in disruption. It's required, but I think it's a great culture in uh, general. All right, Tony, Steve Lashansky wants to know, when you are talking about listening and observing, what specifically are you listening and observing for? Oh, great question. Um, I think uh, great leaders need to be like an elephant, big ears and thick skin. I, I really believe that uh, sometimes we aren't really listening. And when I say listening, there are solutions all over the company. If you create an inclusive environment and you allow people to come forward with ideas, there's so many ideas. So I'm always looking for solutions and listening for solutions. I also want to hear when things aren't going well. You know, if you don't know what's wrong, you can't fix it. And the higher you go, I have found, the harder it is to have that feedback mechanism come to you. So I, I, I encourage people to tell us what we could do better. Um, and last, I also listen for uh, management issues, right? Again, I don't interact in staff meetings. I'm not in one-on-one -on -one meetings. 
what I like to observe to see are the leaders doing their jobs well, are the leaders getting the best out of their people. So those are three things that that I look, listen and look for. And I count on my leadership team also to bring those forward, right? Bring those forward and hopefully with a solution. So those are three examples of things that I'm listening for. How handicapped are you not being able to go sit in a, a room around a big table with your editors and saying, like, what's the story for today? You know, what, what are you missing not being able to, to read the body language during these listening tours? Wow. I had a hard time early on. I, I did. I, I wore out shoes. I love the impromptu meetings. I love town halls. I love small group meetings. I learn so much and I get to meet people and connect with them. This was, this was the hardest adjustment for me. But, but what I would say, just to correct you, you know, I'm, I'm not involved in the coverage. I'm not involved in that. I'm, I'm involved in what are the goals? What are we trying to achieve? I have terrific editors that do that. But what I have found, and I was surprised, is being in a Zoom meeting with everyone's face on the screen is pretty effective in identifying that. And in a meeting, I would call on Greg. I'd say, hey, Greg, I'd notice you, were, you weren't engaged. I would say, hey, Greg, what do you think? I wouldn't, I wouldn't take you on, but I would draw you in. I think those same skills I have applied to Zoom. But I will tell you, it took me a while. I, I somehow the, the, the distance, I was thinking I had to behave differently. As you can tell, I like to stand. I like to talk. I like to use my hands. I started doing that. And, and lo and behold, I didn't lose as much. And as I said, I pick up the phone and call people and it surprises them. And, and, but it's the substitute for the drop in the office, the impromptu conversation. So some small techniques that I think fill a lot of that, but there is no substitute for being in a room and, and being able to rally people. I mean, it, it's, it's a lot harder this way, but it's, it, again, like everything, use the tools available to you and lean in and keep renewing and, and learning as a leader. Stay current, figure out all this stuff that's new and that you can use. And that's part of being an effective leader is staying on the cutting edge and using the tools you have. It's interesting when you talked about time and and uh, and I love saying time is our common enemy. If you're if you want to do great things with your leadership and you want to have great impact, time is the enemy. And when you think about what we're able to do now, here we are. We didn't have to fly here. We're all here. And so um, I can't help but think of that when you were saying, Tony, I'm not wasting any time. I mean, you're on now. Um, and, and that's an exciting kind of principle. It'd be interesting to see yeah. it. And get back to the real world. I think the productivity notion has not been, I mean, I've heard the burnout factor. I, I get that. Every day's a Tuesday. Somebody said to me, I love that line. Even Saturday and Sunday feel like it. Uh, but I've heard the burnout about the pandemic and how we work. But I'll tell you, not commuting, not flying. Yeah. Um, my productivity and, and my uh, energy uh, it's, can stay high consistently. And I've noticed, and then you're more alert mentally. So I think being able to shut it off is important, but 
But I just feel like this has also made us a little more productive in the sense of our energy is really toward work and it's focused on work and you're not having to do things that were really tiring uh, physically and mentally in the past. So my, my team might not like that since, you know, I have a three minute commute, five when I stop for coffee. In exactly. the but, um, but I've really found it to actually improve productivity and, uh, and I've tried to lean into that. Yeah, fantastic. So Dan Silverberg is one of our Thought Council faculty leaders of C-Suite, and he has a great question about the subscription economy and the lifetime value uh, in terms of that whole business model. How are you approaching that? And, you know, what are you looking at in terms of your subscription models and and, and increasing the value of those you have within your, your platforms already? Great question. And I think the, at the core of that question is the key to our future success. This will be a B2C business. It is at the core of our future. And the great news is uh, we know how to do subscription marketing. The better news is we have a lot of customers that love our content. And so we have three simple objectives, very hard to achieve. Number one, Give those print customers that love that platform, give them a great experience as long as they want it and as long as the economics support it. We are not harvesting print. They have selected that. We have outsourced printing. It's on a variable model now. We should give them great content. They will pay for it and we should hold them as long as we can. Importantly, so people don't think I've lost my mind on this topic, others I have, Importantly, there's a, there's a cohort of those group of print sub customers like me who start to ease into the e-edition, e-into the app, ease into using digital. So activating people into digital, measuring them, see how much they're consuming, and knowing what price point to give them on a digital subscription that is highly profitable. We've been giving away digital subs. Why? Our digital offerings better than print. You get more, you get video. Why are we giving it at a lower price? So I think that is a key part to our success. And of course, last is managing the funnel, driving awareness and traffic at the top of the funnel, using data and uh, direct marketing techniques to convert those uh, people that come and read to subscribers. And then we've done it for over 100 years, pricing them, as their loyalty grows, pricing them and raising that price to a level. All of those levers sound so simple, are, you know, are extremely hard to do, but that's what we mean by reinventing the subscription model. We think it's those three things and doing them extremely well and doing them at the core with essential, terrific content. Linda Fisk says, having objective fact-based journalism is so key to our democracy. How can media get paid for their content without selling their audience database? And she wants to know about privatizing media as an option. And she just wants to know how you can make some money. Well, uh, I, I think this is so important right now that our sector, our industry, our pub, the publishing, uh, my brothers and sisters in the industry to really elevate our game 
and really begin to do the best journalism, whether it be news and information that helps you live effectively, whether it helps you from a utility standpoint, whether it's speaking truth to power, and last, social, uh, social and economic thought leadership in our markets. All of those things haven't changed. We've done that forever. I think doubling down on that and doing that extremely well and reminding people we do it, we're not good marketers generally, reminding them we're doing it is one way to bring and uh, use the magnet to keep them with us and show how important we are to a functioning community. That's one thing. Subscribers will pay, we know that. Advertisers will pay to reach our audiences. They're just doing it at a lower level. And we signed a deal with Gannett to join their national sales network. And we did that because they're the best and we're not national. So I'm gonna let them do my national. We're gonna focus on local businesses. I think that indirectly pays for content by helping businesses. And last, of course, we believe the platform should pay us. And uh, our industry uh, association, the News Media Alliance, has uh, stated our case for that and will continue to. And, and there, are, there are ways that we can get paid. And we're, we believe that's another revenue stream that this industry uh, will eventually get paid for our content from the platforms. Tony, when you're looking at, you know, disrupting, about really taking um, an organization where you know it's not capturing what's happening now and what the future looks like, and you want to make that change. Steve Lashansky has this great question about what are you really listening for? What are you really observing? And I love the elephant analogy, you know, big ears, thick skin. What specifically is it that you're listening for? That Steve's asking me a really hard question because that, that, that could be a whole segment. Um, I, I, I'll break it down this way. I think you need to be anticipating what's going. This really deals with disruption and how to be a good leader, I think. You have to be knowledgeable about the trends in the marketplace. You have to watch what's occurring around you and anticipate what's happening. That's a form of listening. That's a form of learning. I think you also need to uh, look for other innovation in adjacent industries, industries that are doing things differently. Like, you know, we, we copied Cisco back in the day, Chambers, uh, what did he call it? Co-ompetition, right? Frenemies. Um, well, that's, we started delivering our competitor. We started printing our, you know, finding adjacent things. That's listening and watching what others are doing. Bring that into your organization. Employees, I've already covered. Listen for solutions, listen for issues. And then last on the client side, and we, we've missed this a bit. National advertisers wanted seamless, uh, turnkey, one point of entry, data-driven solutions for advertising, not 50 newspaper companies they had to deal with. And so I think you got to look to what your clients are looking for, including consumers, and you got to be listening for that feedback and delivering the news and information the way they want it delivered. And so those would be on the spot the ways I would answer that. It's not all listening, but it's being alert and proactive and, and really having your finger on the pulse of what's going on in your business. Joshua Gold wants to know, how do you organize your company to be large, but still agile? 
Well, we don't have a lot of levels in our company, first of all. I think streamlining management is, is one way. Second, I said this earlier to Jeff, how many of us have written business plans or seen business plans that are 50 to 100 pages and the only people that really understand it are the authors? I'm sure nobody on this call has seen those. I have. Um, you streamline your business plan. You make it simple. So everybody knows exactly what we're going to do. And then you include them in, in, in this. They're all in it. They're doing it every day. And I, I just think some of this is simple, but it's hard to execute because it's people. Uh, but we streamline, we've simplified our plan. Uh, we are measuring, we're really upping our uh, planning and analysis capabilities at the company right now so that we can anticipate and, and be able to pivot. And then last, we're not doing small things anymore, right? We were a mile wide and an inch deep. And that doesn't make you agile, that makes you slow. And so we're skinnying down so that when we see an opportunity, we can quickly shift. And if you got your hands around on everything and you're focused on this, you also can pivot those not, you can turn those dials differently. So we're, we're doing all those things and then we're building a culture and setting expectations of our leaders that we expect that behavior. That is the hard one is, you know, really getting people to, to think, hey, I can make a mistake, I can fail forward. But I, I think those are ingredients to creating a nimble, small, you know, and we, we never leave a meeting without talking about our mission, right? We're a mission-based uh, organization. We're proud of it. It's why I'm back. I love our mission. It's so important. And when you have that, you should leverage that. I mean, that fires up our people when we speak truth to power, when we break a story, you know, whether you're in advertising or ops or finance, everybody gets excited about that. So we try to amplify that mission. I think that's acting like a small company, more like a small company when you focus on mission. And that's why we're all here right now. I love that, Tony. And oh my goodness, are we aligned in terms of being mission driven here at C-Suite? You know, you want to make that difference and and help people understand how they play their role in that. And and that's everybody that comes into your ecosystem, right? That's so powerful. C-Suite Radio. There are so many questions. You're just lighting fire all over the place here uh, that people are just loving. I don't know if that's because they're not liking my answers, but. Uh... <laughs> it is. It's fantastic. I'm going to combine three of them. I've got Sandra D. Robinson, Tina Greenbaum and Emily, uh, Emily Braun. And they're, the, the three of them have questions that are people related. And so I'm just going to kind of combine them a little bit. Sandra was talking about exactly what you were just getting into right now, which is how do you keep that small company feel and culture, you know, and, and deliver that into a, a large company culture. Um, Tina was looking at, you know, and how do you, how do you tie in the EQ piece of that and I think that's you know absolutely entwined, and and Emily was getting at it from the perspective of uh, that you know people side of things and having open minded journalists you know in an environment where every you know we're we're really being polarized. Uh, publicly in our public discourse constantly. So I think there's a whole lot of people component to that. Those three, right. those three right. pieces. I'm going to start with empathy, if you don't mind. I, I, you know, 
Jeff says, I'm an agitator of change. I've been a change agent. I've never had a job that isn't, hasn't been a change. But what I've learned after maybe my first two or three stints and uh, jobs is uh, change is hard. It's hard on people. And when you forget that, I, I think you become less effective. So I, I talk about it. I'm passionate about it, but there's a balance and the balance has to be, you have to have empathy and you have to understand that you are breaking the China. You are asking people to do things differently. And the important part of that to me is to be, you know, just be empathetic, supportive to the people that are impacted and importantly, explain why we're doing it. Not be a mandate, but explain it and try to find a way for them to contribute. But that, you know, you learn that in kindergarten probably. But as you get, you know, more and more experience, sometimes we're hard charging. So I, I think the empathy is a great point. Uh, you know, this notion of objective, being objective, I really rely on our terrific editors. We, again, I, I can't tell you how thrilled I am with the work they do for us. I'm proud of it. And I think we do a great job of keeping that bright line between opinion and news. Uh, on the opinion side, we should have a point of view and we should state that point of view. And, but we should draw a bright line between that and covering news and making sure we're objective. Now, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. Uh, no matter how you write something, someone will say you're leaning one way or the other. But my point is, we believe in that. We have a legacy of believing in that here. And I think our folks do a fine job of making sure we keep that bright line on that. And then the last one I think was about small, another small company, which uh, I'm gonna thank Jeff for this because he brought this up because that seems to be a theme. And again, it all starts with the tone at the top. If I take my time and uh, either, what's the old uh, thing we see all, a lot of senior folks have done this. Just ask questions, just keep asking questions. Send people back to work, give them more assignments. I, what about this, what about that? If I'm doing that, that's not acting like a small company. A small company is making decisions on the spot and they're moving. They have a metabolism that is, is uh, frankly, they have more to risk and more to lose than a large company. And sometimes I, so I think tone at the top is critical that if I'm not walking the talk and my leadership team isn't walking the talk, that's where I think it normally breaks down, frankly. I, I, I think everybody watches us. And so I think behavior, and I also think good monitoring and setting expectations high, that comes in the form of gentle nudges, dropping breadcrumbs, as I like to say, and setting uh, deadlines work in our business, by the way. So one way that is a very simple way is you tell Greg, I want something next Friday. And you know what? Greg gets something about 85% of the way done by next Friday. And if you gave him till the following Friday, he'd get to 87%. And if you gave him another Friday, he'd get to 90%. So I think deadlines work. And You're getting it on Thursday, business. Tony Hunter. You're getting it on Thursday. <laughs> but you know, right, I have a good. question. But, but, but I think that that sounds so like micro, but all of our success is based on these decisions you make, the, the words you use, the actions you ever, 
those are powerful when they are combined. So there's no silver bullet and it starts with tone at the top in my view. So uh, you mentioned, and I quote, you're trying to find what consumers are willing to pay for. So in the news business now, what are they willing to pay for? Is it the sports? Is it business? Is it opinion? And also with regard to newspapers, how do you make sure that you include things that are not as popular, but they still need, you know, so for example, they're the vegetables, you know, because, you know, look, not everyone wants to read about, I don't know, municipal bonds in the business section, but you know that they're good for people's portfolios. You can't just write about Google and Apple stock all the time. So what's making money for you right now? And is, is it the sports? And is it the business? Is the op-ed? And also, how do you get those vegetables in there so, so people are, are learning about their communities as well? Uh, great, great question. Complicated uh, and complex, of course. What we have found is when you give people the essential news in their community, meaning at the really important things that are happening in their community from a newsworthy standpoint. If you don't have those, you don't have you don't have a news site. You got to have those. Sports is included in that, I would say. Business is included in that. So we view it as local community. What's important to that local community? And we haven't found great success in selling sports-only subscriptions. And, you know, it's the bundle. And why is that? Serendipity. You don't know what you're going to get when you go to our site that day. And there are things you didn't know you wanted to know. But when you read it, you're like, I'm glad I know it, right? There are things that if you curated your own news site and your own newspaper, you would miss out on other things. So there's an art and a science, but I think there's some hardcore news that you have to cover. There's, there's utility journalism, what's going on, how do I do certain things in my community? And there's the opinion, sports, all of those things. But I, I think the key is to create a bundle of content that again, it'll sound kind of corny, the sum of the individual parts, right? Isn't as great as the whole package you provide them. That, that package is why people come to us. And I think that's, that's what we have found. Uh, we've tested other things and we keep coming back to having uh, the subscription for all of our content. And then it's our job to curate it in a way that keeps people coming back and paying us. Probably not the answer you're looking for, Greg, but that's the best one. No, no, it's a, it's a great answer. And what you don't, what you can't report on, you can, I guess you can get from Reuters or uh, one of the news wires and say, look, we know that we need to cover an earthquake in Afghanistan, but we don't well have said. reporters there. So we're going to buy it off Reuters because this is important. That's how we do it. You're exactly right. National news. We're not doing national news. We buy it from people that do it better than we ever could. And we can't afford it. We need to own local. You know, local, 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 own local advertising and own, own local content. That's that's our differentiator at McClatchy. And we're doubling down on that and letting others do the things that we aren't advantaged, like national. So, so Tony, Kathleen Caldwell is, again, one of our thought leaders, uh, our, our faculty of all of C-suite, and the leader of the Women's Leadership Council. And I'm putting that in there intentionally because she had two questions, which I think beautifully dovetail together. One is about the lessons you learned along your journey about 
who you are as a leader. And the other is uh, related to how you promote and have worked with women over the years and and really um, being an advocate for women's leadership uh, within your organizations. Oh boy, I'll start with uh, all my warts, as I like to say. So, you know, I, I always like to say to folks, I used to read reviews that said, change your behavior, uh, change this, change that. And, you know, what I have realized is a lot of the things that I had as a kid, a teenager, are still part of who I am. And I've learned to uh, to compensate for those, you know. I, I, I didn't like to raise my hand and talk in class. I didn't like to speak in a big setting. And boy, in my job, I had to, I had to figure that out. But that that required me to put a ton of energy and effort into it and get over some things that were deep inside me though, in terms of doing things like that. I had to learn also that pride, being proud and being confident. Become a, can become a weakness, especially as you uh, move up in the ranks. Uh, you realize quickly that you don't have all the answers and you realize also that pride can get you in the way of the answer. And so that's one thing I had to learn. And the other thing is I do not um, smell the rose as well, right? I don't, you know, I look, I, I get done with one thing and I'm on to the next. And just because that works for me, it doesn't work for most people. And I had to really learn that everybody's not wired like me and we need to pause and people need to be, uh, get accolades and rewards. And I, you know, they, they need that before you go to the next thing. Those are, those are three things that just pop into my mind that I knew I had to work on. And the only other thing I would say is I, I do, um, I, I come from two parents that worked in a glass factory their whole lives. And all I will say, I also know one thing about what I haven't changed, and that's integrity, and courage, and treating people the way I want to be treated. I have to put my parents in this. I have not changed that. I didn't get a lobotomy as I rose the ranks. I remembered the things that are so important to be a leader. I also had two daughters and then a son to go to the next question. And being a daddy, as I like to say, with two daughters, and I've been married 35 years to my wonderful wife, Sue. And that's why I sent Jeff the granddaughter, right? It's like, I mean, I love every, I've, all my kids. I love every, my grandkids, but I learned as a father a lot about that. And I watched how I didn't believe there was the right environment. So I joined an organization called Women Unlimited as a mentor. And I've been associated with them forever. I was the champion at Chicago Tribune. We put three or four people through every year. And I learned a ton about how to manage women more effectively. And this is a, I know a dicey topic, unless you know what I've been through for 20 years with Women Unlimited. But, and how there wasn't the same opportunity. So I, I elevated two women in operations. All we had was white males around the table when I took over. I'm like, well, this, this doesn't, that's not our workforce. So I've looked for opportunities and it came from actually, you know, being a father to daughters 
and realizing that, you know, it's important for men who are more privileged, frankly, to provide those opportunities for women. So I've, I've got um, a long list of uh, protégés that I'm so, I've learned so much from, but that Women Unlimited experience has made me a, a way better husband, way better father, and also a way better leader. So that's, that's kind of in a nutshell, maybe more than you wanted, but it, it's, a very, it's very important to me. And we do have a DEI initiative at McClatchy. We're focused on those things at our company. We have great diversity at our leadership team. Um, and so I'm, I'm really proud of that. And I inherited most of that at McClatchy. Another reason why I'm very proud to, to be the CEO there. You're listening to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett, brought to you by C-Suite Radio, a podcast network featuring today's top business experts and is part of the C-Suite Network, the world's most trusted network of C-Suite executives. Find this and other business podcasts on c-suiteradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.